0: With the coronavirus pandemic, supply chain risk has come home to roost. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, editor-in-chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. One might say that the global coronavirus outbreak is just one more in an endless series of lessons for companies about the necessity to engage in proper supply chain risk management. But it's an especially harsh one, impacting every aspect of sourcing, production, distribution, sale, and customer demand. On this episode, I speak with three experts in supply chain risk who address different facets of the outbreak according to their areas of specialization. We'll hear from Bill DiMartino, General Manager of Risk Methods, who will speak to the impact of the coronavirus on various aspects of the supply chain and the lessons to be learned from it. Pierre-Francois Thaler, co-CEO of EcoVadis, will discuss how the crisis is affecting his organization's ability to monitor working conditions and human rights in overseas factories. And Jim Wedekamp, CEO of RiskConnect, will cover the virus's impact on consumer demand and buying patterns now and in years to come. So here are my conversations with Bill DiMartino, Pierre-Francois Thaler, and Jim Wedekamp. Bill DiMartino of Risk Methods, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Bill, what's the latest information you have on the supply chain impact of the coronavirus with regard to what industries are being hit, which areas are being hit? What impacts are we seeing right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a rapidly evolving situation, and the impacts that we're seeing are really transforming and transitioning from primarily an events in Asia that's now impacting Europe and spreading into the North American supply chain directly, especially as we all know, we got to day, the state emergency here. Been on the phone with various customers and um, other folks seeking emergency services over the last couple of days. And the impacts are, I think we've gotten to the point now where factories are shutting down and productions are moving to the point where it's a day to day impact, where if the factory shut down for another day, then our ability to deliver goods is going off another day. And as we look across industries, I don't really think it's a specific industry challenge, but we do see a dramatic level of increase in force majeures and production shutdowns and just across the board of logistics, choke points and things like that.
0: I guess the type of manufacturing that is not happening is the important thing because we're all hoping, of course, that the supply chain remains open for essential supplies, for food and for medicine and stuff like that. But I think you're talking about overseas factories that are producing like consumer goods and the like that we theoretically could live without for a little while, right?
1: Well, if you think about the progression of the virus and where it started in China, obviously China tends to be tier one or tier two, tier three for many different supply chains, including some of the food. But you're right, the food supply chain typically tends to be be shorter. And so it was primarily looking at the impacts, probably first and foremost, to, to high tech and then secondly, to some of the automotive supply chains. And as things have moved into Europe, where a lot of the the Tier 1 automotive suppliers are, as well as in North America, we're we're seeing across the board that many of the automotive OEMs are just shutting down. But I'm also starting to see that, for instance, in A&D, where the local manufacturers in the States are dependent upon what's going on in China and Europe, and those folks are shutting down. So it's really the effects are taking hold everywhere, I think pretty much across all of the industries that we expect. As we've seen in our customer base, they tend to have supply chains that don't start in the farms. But even for those supply chains, we are seeing things like ports and hubs and distribution centers and the ability to keep the actual logistics running is starting to turn into a challenge as well.
0: It's unprecedented, isn't it? Because any other type of disruption generally is geographically oriented in which we can say, well, you just need to find alternative suppliers in another region. But if the whole world is under attack, including the United States, and it's not a question of just shifting manufacturing here domestically or going to another area. It's going to affect you no matter what, right? Well, I
1: think that's exactly the point here is it's unprecedented. As you noted, historically, there would be one event, even if it was a large disaster event, it had some sort of a a localized impact, you were able to understand what the impact of that event was and then build a reaction plan. In this case, we see an event that started in China that might have produced a production stoppage or shortage because you didn't have materials. But the next event may be that you can't even bring your folks into the factory to actually operate. So it's the compounding interest story is the way that I see it everything is growing on top of each other and the size of the challenge for the supply chain I think is getting to the point now where we're not going to be able to actually push through it and we see like what's going on right now I believe Daimler just announced that they were going to shut down all production in their facilities for 2 weeks that gives them 2 weeks to understand and assess their own infrastructure. It gives them two weeks to understand if they're actually going to be able to keep the supply chain going, and it gives them two weeks to organize alternative sources of supply. So I would expect we're going to see a lot more stoppages like that. So it's really giving the organization a chance to catch its breath and and put a plan in place similar to what we're doing across the board in terms of shutting down restaurants and shutting down schools. I think manufacturing is going to go in the same direction.
0: We always hope that any disruption provides lessons for us for the future. Going forward, how might this particular event alter risk calculations? I mean, can it? What types of lessons can be learned and how can risk calculations be different in future?
1: What we may have in this case is actually the straw that broke the camel's back. If you look at the events that have unfolded over the last couple of years, the key word and the key message is that I've continued in risk methods has been, been, been talking to everyone about is the concept of uncertainty. And if you think about tariffs, and trade wars and anti-globalization and political unrest and large migrations and climate change all of these macro level drivers have one thing in common and that is we're not exactly sure what they mean how they're going to play out what the long-term effect are so your supply chain has to be configured and be able to deal with that uncertainty and if we look at what's going on right now we have an event that really couldn't be predicted so, the best that you can do is to prepare and understand what is the appropriate risk posture for your organization. Do I need to qualify additional sources of supply? Do I have to have more regional and localized sources of supply? Do I need to get away from sole source and dingle source and, and really truly understand what is the appropriate level of risk for your organization and then have the ability in a program to monitor it, track it, and ensure that you're adhering to it? And I think this is. That the moment where organizations were going to finally wake up and say, I have to take these actions, I have to be prepared. And I think preparation, as we've seen from a lot of folks, is really about this idea of rethinking the design of their supply chain, the way they source and treat and interact with their suppliers. So I think all of those are going to be steps that we get to post-crisis, while right now we're still focused on getting visualization to the unfolding events as different regions go through the challenge.
0: Bill D. Martino of Risk Methods, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Bob.
0: Well, Pierre-Francois Thaler, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Happy to be with you.
0: I want to hear from you just what impact you've seen that the coronavirus outbreak has on the ability of auditors and monitors of supplier and factory conditions to do their work. Has it brought it to a halt? Is it making it more difficult? What is going on there?
2: I think for a couple of weeks, all uh, audits and inspections were on hold in China, certainly a, in a country with a complete lockdown. Things are opening up again in China, but they are closing in uh, all of their uh, countries. You know, It's a very difficult situation because in addition to the logistics and the you know, situation issues, you have uh, more difficulty not to verify the quality or of- in the sustainability of what you buy.
0: We have heard, and I don't know how much credence to put in this, but we've heard that because the number of new cases in China has decreased significantly, that certain t- factories are getting back up and running, that production is starting to resume. Is that your perception as well?
2: Yes. But for, you know, Ecovadi's activity, uh, in, in, it's interesting. Our activity didn't really drop in the... Uh, In February, you know, uh, when we have a number of uh, assessments, we do, but but the thing is we have been doing everything virtual, you know, everything remotely, using virtual audits and uh, local data sources and so on. So uh, we have a bit of a Different approach. You know, what we hear from uh, from customers is that you know progressively supply chain are restarting, but they still have lots of issues with the docks in uh, Europe, which are not preventing goods to be shipped to Europe. Or uh, you, know, you still have a number of things which are working.
0: So you are in fact able to continue your work in some way. You say you can do some of this remotely.
2: Yes, since day one, we pioneered the model of virtual audits, where we assist the environmental, social, governance performance of factories using the virtual audits, collecting information remotely, checking this with the, uh, the documents, and cross-checking this with uh, local data sources, NGOs, unions. for example, where we crawl information from the Internet. So this has been our our model since, uh, since day one.
0: You, you do have on-site, auditors and on-site NGOs who can monitor it from that point, you can communicate with them, right? And do they have, still have access to the factories as they did before?
2: NGOs have information which they get directly from workers or from local information sources. And I think that well, we see what happens in the next three, four months, which are probably going to be very difficult globally. But I think that the crisis we face is also forcing companies to invent new ways of working. And I think the old way of laying a team from, uh, of engineers from the U.S. to China, and I don't think it's going to be possible even after we recover from this crisis. So, uh, so companies are going to move much more to uh, virtual ways of collaborating, uh, checking information, uh, and certainly far less travel, far less dependencies. On uh, being, being physically uh, present
0: now, before the coronavirus outbreak, clearly we had a very strong U.S. and global economy going, and I'm sure the factories were up and running for all hours or close to that. Do you believe that before this happened, that you were making significant progress in being able to properly audit? factory, and worker conditions?
2: Yes. So what we've been doing in the past couple of years is increasing the availability of those virtual audits by, for example, adding much more information sources. So using artificial intelligence, we are now able to monitor real-time hundreds thousands of data sources of, for example, local NGOs or local uh, information sources. It's possible to do
0: a lot. You were indeed making progress, but would you say that this is to any degree a setback in your efforts, or do you indeed feel that you are able to continue them even with this crisis going on? Is it a setback in any way?
2: At Covadis, we've been able to transition in a couple of uh, days. Actually, our operations, 100% of offices, we've closed all our offices worldwide, and we are we are fully operational. What is a challenge, though, is availability of our customers. Many of our customers are uh, not available. They are still very busy trying to uh, reorganize their own operations. Of course, we are impacted by the crisis, and we are very worried about the impact of the crisis on the communities and health of many countries. But in terms of our own operations, there was a marginal impact.
0: Clearly we are about to head into a very serious economic plunge, but that will be over at some point and we will have a recovery at which point these factories are going to probably gear up production to extreme levels. And I'm to the perhaps risking worker conditions forcing them to work extra hours, extra shifts and the like. Do you feel there are any issues as factories ramp up for a recovery that you're going to have to be especially vigilant about monitoring?
2: Yes, I think you're right. I think there will be. But I think companies won't wait for this to start to anticipate. But what we hear from large corporates or large procurement organization is they understand that sustainability and CSR is a lot about building resilience in supply chain. And they are now launching lots of projects to, um identify new sources of supply, move their supply from China to uh, Southeast Asia or to Eastern Europe, qualifying plenty of new vendors. And CSR capabilities or CSR practices of vendors is something they're looking at because they know know, what's going what will allow them to mitigate the impact of the next crisis.
0: Pierre-François Taylor of EcoVadis. I want to thank you very much for being with us again to help us to understand what's going on on the worker safety uh, and factory condition side in light of the coronavirus outbreak. Thanks a lot for being with us.
2: Thanks for that too and be safe.
0: Jim Wedekamp of Risk Connect, welcome to the program. Hi, Bob. Jim, I want to hear your perspective on changing consumer behavior as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. What are you seeing there already in terms of what we obviously have to be significantly decreased consumer spending?
3: Well, you're seeing a lot of changes, I think, linked to this moment that are happening in waves. It started, obviously, a few months ago with impacts to global trade and supply chain all stemming from China. And now kind of we're in a current wave of obviously different pressures on retail at this moment. and Consumer spending spiking in some categories and areas and eroding in others, most notably move, move- travel and business, hospitality, then into retail, store locations. And as you're seeing more and more locations, particularly in the U.S., starting to lock down a bit more, you're going to see that continue. Correlating impacts then on kind of the demand that's hitting other areas linked to that, such as transportation. And where you'll expect to see then the shifts start to happen, particularly as the outbreak, if it continues to grow in places like the U.S., a spillover into healthcare downs and lockdowns on retail.
0: Uh, would it be too extreme to say that we're looking at the biggest disruption to consumer behavior since World War II?
3: Can you remember another time where there was rationing at grocery stores?
0: Certainly not. not. Not in this country.
3: Yeah, you're seeing a lot of different behaviors at this time, and and I think also a lot of concern or ambiguity on how long it's going to
0: last. Meanwhile, though, how are manufacturers and retailers dealing with the fact that in some cases product is still coming in to warehouses and distribution centers, but it's not going to be going out anytime soon? So are they scrambling for places to store this inventory to the extent it is still coming in in anticipation of the time when it will indeed be needed again?
3: Yeah, again, it's varying by sector. I think you start to see ebbs and flows of that in terms of a lot of price volatility on consumer goods or different types of goods, particularly those that are perishable versus stockpiling of those that are not is less of an issue. You also still have segments of consumer demand that are continuing, particularly those that can be shopped online or via e-commerce where you're not seeing the slowdown or impact as of yet. So it's a lot of volatility depending upon the industry and also the size of the purchase. I don't think you're seeing as much difficulty with that as you would think because a lot of these supply chains had slowed down already based upon the inability to get goods out of China. But you are going to not to start to see a gap based upon China production is actually starting to come back online and will be in advance of U.S. demand.
0: I have spoken to some individuals who, in the case especially of grocery, have found themselves turning to online orders that they weren't doing before and finding that they enjoyed the experience. We've seen e-commerce steadily increasing its share of overall retail spending, although it's still not that large. Do you think that this might actually permanently transform some consumers' buying behavior now that they've become familiar with the whole idea of e-commerce and home delivery and the like?
3: You're probably reaching a demographic that had not done it before that might come to like it or stay focused upon it. But I think probably the more long-term behavior, and by long-term I mean this year, next year, will be greater preparation for this to happen again without knowing when the next event like this will be. So I think you're more likely to see consumer behavior change in how individuals stockpile or inventory different goods or think about their buying patterns and preparedness more than I think you'll see a huge shift in how people
0: buy. Do you think that there might be a move toward greater amounts of safety stock being held by companies who, in recent years, were doing exactly the opposite, taking it off their balance sheets, depending on efficient delivery and JIT and the like, and now they might be stocking up again in anticipation of future disruptions? Is that possible?
3: Yeah, I think so. And also, linked to that, also those that had really narrowed down their supply chains to single sources of supply and really focused on price optimization with few relationships and and having maximized their volume, you're going to find them refragmenting their supply base and being purposeful about having alternate sources of supply to be better ready for this moment. So a lot of things we were doing in the past five to 10 years around optimization of supply chains, I think you're going to see relax and regress a little bit to be more ready for situations like this.
0: What about the implications for business insurance? Were companies sufficiently or adequately prepared with uh, insurance for this type of thing, or will they be seeking such insurance more in the future?
3: The short answer is no. I don't think anyone was is adequately prepared for if you look at the likes of the airline or cruise ship industry or transportation right now your main opportunity right now is linked to business interruption insurance and your ability to leverage that risk transfer vehicle is going to come a lot down to individually what has been written inside of your policies so there are niche areas where you might be able to draw on certain coverages but that's going to be a very individual discussion Event companies, as well, are another one that obviously are, have been dealing with this now for months. And it's going to be a hardened insurance market. So, in terms of the ability for insureds to negotiate better coverage and have leverage to try and expand their transfer in this area, it's going to come at a cost. So premiums won't be easy here. As you look at different lines like general liability or D&O, the insurance company is going to have to modify their behavior and sharpen their pencil on this side as well. So I don't think you have a lot of coverage capability right now where it's very individual. And I think that the insurance companies, while developing special tools and products for this, I don't think we will have general availability with it within traditional lines.
0: Given that we're obviously headed for a pretty serious economic dip, which will indeed recover, I know that companies would rather have the problem of too much demand than not enough demand, and yet will they be challenged when the economy starts humming again and all of a sudden the floodgates open and there's a big surge of demand? Will they have a challenge meeting that demand?
3: Again, depends on category. I think you're going to see on a sector-by-sector basis different answers there. Consumer behavior on retail, I think, is more going to be kind of a slow growth back based upon confidence. So I'm not so certain that in most categories you're going to see a huge hit on that. The area where you're going to have decreasing capacity and, and areas where you've got to reevaluate what's available will be things like transportation, where you do have this inventory stockpiling, you need to start redeploying to retail locations. And will that surge in redeployment be able to happen in anticipation of rising demand? I think the other area is in manufacturing on how hard hit will manufacturing be in terms of workforce and then how able they'll be to retool as that resurfaces. And those are probably the two areas that will be under the most pressure.
0: Jim Weddickamp, thank you so much for spending time with us to give us the consumer demand and consumer behavior side of this coronavirus pandemic and how it might all play out in the future. Thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Bob.
0: Those are my conversations with Bill D. Martino of Risk Methods, Pierre-Francois Thaler of Equivadis, and Jim Wetekamp of Risk Connect, talking about the impact of the coronavirus on supply chain risk. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast. for streaming and downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.